Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is music supervisor and radio personality Jason Kramer. First of all, let's talk about some numbers from Shazam that they just reported. You might not know, but Apple has owned Shazam for 20 years. And in that time, over 70 billion songs have been recognized by about 225 million global users. So let's look at some of the numbers from Shazam because they're really interesting. For instance, what was the first ever Shazam song? It was Jeepster by T-Rex on April 19th in 2002. What was the first Shazam song on an iOS app? How Am I Different by Amy Mann. That was in 2008. The first track to reach 1,000 Shazams, Cleaning Out My Closet by Eminem. On the other hand, what was the first track to reach 1 million Shazams? That was TikTok by Keisha. How about the first one to 10 million? Somebody That I Used to Know by Goat Yay. Oh, we can go even further. First track to reach 20 million. That was Prayer and Sea by Lilywood and the Prick and Robin Schultz. Let's go a little further. The first artist to reach 1 million Shazams, Lil Wayne, who was also the first one to reach 10 million Shazams. But the first one to reach 100 million, David Jetta. What was the fastest track to reach 1 million Shazams? That was Butter by BTS. And the fastest track to reach 10 million Shazams, Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. But the fastest track to reach 20 million, Dance Monkey by Tones and I. It turns out that Drake is the most Shazammed artist of all time, with over 350 million Shazams across all the songs that he's either led or been featured on. This is a surprise. Dance Monkey by Tones and Eyes, the most Shazam song ever, with over 41 million Shazams. The top hip-hop and rap song, this is a big surprise, Can't Hold Us by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, featuring Ray Dalton. Top R&B and Soul, All of Me by John Legend. Top Pop, Let Her Go by Passenger. Top singer-songwriter, Take Me to the Church by Hozier. Now, take notice, the one thing they don't mention is rock. Shazams are crucial to artist discovery and also for music industry recognition, but we tend to take this technology for granted, and we probably shouldn't. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Also, learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, recently I saw an excellent article on Sweetwater about the 10 music products that haven't changed in a long time, and it got me thinking about the currently made microphones that also haven't changed in at least 20 years. So let's talk about them. Well, the first one is the Shure SM57. This was introduced in 1965, and it's still a must-have in studio microphone lockers. It's super rugged and able to take high SPL, and that's why you always see it on snare drums and guitar amps and you'll probably continue to see it there for a long time to come. Number two is the Shure SM58. 
This was introduced a year later in 1966, and it was quickly adapted as a standard sound reinforcement vocal microphone. Once again, there's been a lot of contenders for that position through the years, but engineers keep on coming back to the good old 58. Next on the list is the Shure SM7B. This is really an SM57 on steroids, introduced in 1976. It did have a little bit of a change in that it got a bigger humbucking coil in 1999 and a larger windscreen in 2001. But the basic mic has been a standard in broadcast, and it's been an excellent scratch vocal mic, and remember is also the favorite vocal mic of Michael Jackson. It's also the one I use here in the podcast. Number four on the list is the Sennheiser 441, which was introduced in 1971. And I don't think there's a better mic that has a tighter pattern. Still haven't found anything better as an undersnare mic. Problem is, it's really expensive, but every studio should have one. Here's another one, the Electrovoice RE20, which was introduced in 1968. The thing about this mic is it reduced the proximity effect by incorporating a technique that Electrovoice calls Variable D. It's still very big in broadcast, but you can also find it on kick and even vocals in studios today. What makes it unique is it's a large diaphragm dynamic mic, and it has a very wide frequency range and low proximity effect. Here's another one, the Royer R121. And this already is more than 20 years old. I can remember when it first came out though. This is groundbreaking in that ribbon mics weren't used all that much because it was really hard to find the old RCAs. And then the Royer came out. It was more rugged than the RCAs, sounded just as good, and all of a sudden it was a standard in mic lockers and studios all over the world. Here's another one, and that's the Sony C800G. This was released in 1992, and it really took a long time for it to catch on. Since then, it's become a standard for vocal recording for pop and rap. It's super expensive, though. It's over 10K for a new one. And now we're starting to see clones come into the marketplace. This one surprised me because I didn't think it was made anymore, but it really is. The Sennheiser MKH416 is yet another one. You don't see it much in the studio, but this has been a standard for dialogue recording in television and movies for a really long time. You don't see it in the studio very much, though, although I've used it on a snare drum positioned over the drummer's head. Now, that being said, this is still the one that every shotgun mic is compared to. Another one is the Audio-Technica AT4033. This was the first large diaphragm condenser mic under a thousand bucks. It was a game changer when that happened because you really didn't see that. It's been slightly updated over the years, but the sound really hasn't changed all that much. But it's an excellent starter mic for small studios. And the last one is the Bayer M160. This was introduced way back in 1952. M160 is unusual and then it has two ribbons in it, which enables it to get a hypercardioid pickup pattern. This was standard for all the classic engineers and some of the greatest rock albums in the 60s and the 70s were made with this microphone. Still being made though. So it's nice to know that some products are made so well that they stand a test of time. And these 10 currently bay microphones are great examples. My guest this week is Jason Kramer, who's been working in radio in Los Angeles since 1992 and has hosted an influential weekly radio show on KCRW for the past 24 years. Jason has also worked at Fox Sports TV as their full-time music supervisor for six years, which then led him to work as a show producer for Fox Sports Radio. 
He's also worked in various other aspects of music, including management, publishing, creative consulting, music photography, and continues to work presently as a commercial concept music supervisor for Elias Arts. During the interview, we spoke about the work of a music supervisor, how music supervision has changed over the years, dealing with temp tracks, what a sports radio producer does, the future of radio, and much more. I spoke with Jason via Zoom from his office in Los Angeles. So you have a very interesting background and you've done a lot of things and I want to hear about them all, but let's actually go back to the beginning when you started in the business. How did that happen? Well, I mean, it, it starting in the business is such a kind of, it's almost a loaded question for me because um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I, uh, I was always a huge fan of music and I started off as like a little punk rocker growing up in Los Angeles and meeting my best friend at the time, William, in the seventh grade. And he looked like me in the same clothes we wore. And it was the same music that we enjoyed. And it was that instant connection. And that's where it kind of kind of started in a way. I mean, if you really go back, it was my uncle giving me um, Magical Mystery Tour and Bob Marley's Exodus when I was seven. Boy, and, good way to start. Know, yeah, you know, that started off, he's always a huge music fan. I didn't really come from a music family whatsoever, except my, my uncle was kind of a, was a hippie, so I kind of grew up in that world a little bit. Uh, but with William E., you know, listening to ska and punk growing up when you're at that formative age, and, you know, just going to different concerts and shows, um, the band, some of the members of the band Fishbone went to my high school at the same time. And that was definitely one of our favorite bands. I mean, that kind of went hand in hand. And so it kind of lived into that world for a, a good while until William had moved with his, um, his dad uh, back to Massachusetts. So I kind of had to like restart my, my world again, in a way you could say. Um, and I wanted to get and become a firefighter paramedic. And so I geared my life to that direction. So I kind of put this music thing on hold. And when I was 17, I started working at Santa Monica hospital. Um, I was the youngest employee at that hospital. I was an in-house tech. So I worked on the cold blue team. I worked in ER and surgery. And at that time it was 1987. And I had made some smart ass comment when we were doing the, the intro to working there, kind of the walkthrough. And so they decided to kind of curb that. They're going to put me in final stage oncology and uh, final stage AIDS. And so I was designated to the floor of both AIDS and oncology. So that kind of whipped me into shape really fast of the realities of what goes on in medicine. Um, and while I was doing that, on the 18th birthday, I became auxiliary with LA City Fire Department. I worked on the ambulance and then I worked on the privates. I became a field training officer and a captain and, and the whole nine yards. And on my days off, I still had that, that, that bug. And so in 1992, um, I was a letter writing fool, you know, calling folks, no email at that time. I got a job answering phones at KLOS radio out here in Los Angeles with um, who is now uncle Joe Benson and Al Ramirez who did this thing called seventh day. And so I, I worked on that. And then, 
as time was going on, I was getting kind of burnt out from the whole EMS world. Um, I got a CD from my friend and he said, check out this band. I really, really, really dug this band. And so I started calling them and, and writing letters again. No one did that then it seems like, and said, I want to come work with you guys and all this. It turned out that band was sublime and, you know, it became such an inspirational band for so many. And this was in 94 until Brad's death um, in 96. And that was my, pretty much my last day there. And then I, I left the ambulance and luckily enough, um, I got a job as an assistant at Fox sports music. Where you you know, inevitably met, met Richard and that. And I was, you know, the, we were kind of like the original music supervisors back. Well, music supervision has been around for since the fifties. I mean, you look at like, I love Lucy and has all that. And of course that, that terminology has changed. Those are really music directors and a little more different than gathering music. They didn't really do that back then, but we were pretty much the first of the modern day. Um, and we were a department, a music department in a network TV for Fox sports. Um, and we had something like maybe 18 own and operated channels we were in charge of. I worked on maybe five show live shows a day, another five, six tape shows a week, promos, the whole nine yards. And I think we did something like 1.3 million cues of music. And there was three of us that did this whole, the whole network. Wow. You know, and, and to me, it's like, okay, that's all the cool and fun stuff. If you're into cue sheets and all that other nonsense, but yeah, whatever. But it, it was kind of the intro, you know, and here I, I started working in that field. I always still had the bug for radio. And one day I was working at museum TV and radio as a side gig, kind of wanting to learn. So my, my behavior has always been, if I want to get into something, I want to immerse myself around it first to see if I like it. I did that with the, you know, the EMS, the ambulance, then the fire department, then this and that. And I worked two years at County Corners. So I got that kind of bug out of me. And then I want to know, do I like this music stuff? So I started working in that world. So the Museum of TV and Radio was just to sit there and be kind of a, a museum docent, but at the same time, learn and study what radio and TV is all about on a different way. And one day, the Michael Stipe had come in to do an interview of R.E.M., and I always was a fan of KCRW growing up and got the opportunity to, uh, again, writing letters. They gave me the right person to talk to. And I ended up volunteering on a few shows and eventually being on air. And now, you know, on my 24th year of being on air there. At that same time, um, I got another job. I was still at Fox. Um, I want to learn more about how to progress in radio. So since I was at Fox, I figured, well, why don't I work at Fox Sports Radio and talk radio and understand and learn what radio is about, how to do talk radio and, you know, get into that understanding in that world. I'm still doing the KCRW. How do I now do talk radio? Worked at talk radio for two years producing, you know, shows. And I do KCRW and talk and talk. And at the same time on Sundays, funny enough, um, I was part of soundbreak.com, which was the first internet radio station in, in, in anything. It was 1999. And we had, I was doing five hour shows. We had a camera in us at all, at all times. Uh, we had chat room. So we were, 
you know, talking to the audience and at the same time talking right to a camera. From what I gather, they created the MP4 codec off of the station, which then became the YouTube codec, as we know, for, um, for that, for everything today, this. And so in 1999, we were the first kind of like YouTubers in a sense. And it was all the B jocks from all the A radio station, I mean, the overnight crews or whatever. Mark Goodman from MTV um, was my boss. Lisa Crane, who had worked at, at NBC.com, was also, you know, the president or the boss, the big boss. Back then, they called this new media. This wasn't called internet. This wasn't called normality. This was called, we have this, and then we have new media. And it's a world we don't know about yet. And so forever further, that's what it was. So doing that, you know, working in music and that, and uh, to, to cut it, cut the fast forward here, like I said, um, I was there for two years until they kind of folded the company up when the bubble burst for everybody. And I started working in music houses and as an in-house music kind of supervisor in a way, we're in a concept music supervisor. I come with the conceptual sound of how we create commercials and work with the agencies on, on the commercial itself. So it wasn't just, okay, we're going to put a piece of music, but let's put ideas together and formulate what we think a sound is going to be. So I did that. And, uh, you know, working in that world, I've been an instructor and adjunct professor. Um, I got, I did a lot of panels and I got the talking bug doing going to school. So I decided maybe I'll just teach cause I always wanted to teach. So I taught at UCLA, USC, and now at MI. And next is Oxford. I've just got to figure out I'm going to do that. <laughs> Mark my words. If Oxford has a music program, I'm going to be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's come back for a second here. I'm curious only because I listen to it a lot is sports talk radio. Tell me what the producer does. I have an idea, but tell me what you do typically. Okay. So I was a day-to-day producer. You have a, a not day day, but a, a show producer, you have a, a specific producer designated for each one of those shows. Within those times, the producer and the host are in constant cahoots, right? So the producer is going to uh, find guests, going to book, um, set up the show schedule, um, how we're going to do today, what is the, the, the whole setup. Um, the hosts they're usually sports fanatics, so they know what they want to do. So we know how like a, a show is going to be be done. So let's say a show, we'll, we'll just do a radio clock right here. Let's say your show is from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. No, 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 that's a little out of it. Let's do let's do 8 to 9 because sporting events usually eight around that time. So do 8 to 9, 8 to 9 p.m. And you know um, your show is, is it's a once a week show, maybe it's every day. But in that time, you know you have all these games that are going to be playing during that season or during that time of the show. So it usually starts off with the show intro, what we're going to be talking about. Maybe we'll talk about the NFL suspension of, you know, said player today that's dealing with a lot of that stuff and the NFL commissioner and that. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about that. Now, we know because this is a hot button topic that what if we get as a guest, um, maybe a psychologist, maybe a somebody that deals with the NFL, maybe it's a a former coach that wants to come in and we've already contacted them 
So the host will, will then do maybe a five minute monologue. And then we bring that said guest to come in on the show and they'll be either out of their house or since, you know, I was at Fox, um, since it was big enough that a lot of times that coach or whoever your guest was could go to another Fox studio affiliate in their neighborhood. And we could just do an IS at that time it was ISDN lines and it would be the, the host would be in, in Connecticut and we're in Los Angeles and where our host actually was coming out of New York. So you could have three different people on at any given time in three different places because of the ISDN lines. So, and, or you pre-record it and you play it live, which happens probably 50% of the time. Hmm. And people think it's live radio when actually a lot of it's pre-recorded, but you don't know that. So that that's around eight fifteen or so of course, commercial breaks, news updates. And we're coming back with, Joe Blow at Fenway uh, wants to talk about, um, you know, he's the, the game's over the winners. We got a mic on it. A stringer is going to come up. We're going to talk to Joe Blow at Fenway. Boom. You already have Fenway punched in and you tell the host, okay, here we go. Uh, we got Joe Blow at, at Fenway. Let's get him on done. All right. So they do the whole, the whole shtick and all this. And maybe there's a question here a second. And then the host, the stringer at Fenway would say, oh, I got such and such player right here. Let's talk to him. Get him on, the host. They have that conversation. It's always dialogue that's it makes no sense. It's the same conversation over and over again. And then you're done, right? And then that's maybe about 10.30 or, so, or 8.30. And then you have your various different fill-ins and, and what have you. But, it, you know, as your question was, the, the producer is making sure that all the AI stand lines are working you have all the hosts that are going to be in there, making sure all the stringers are going to be there at your six minute mark or your six minute commercial. You may have to rewind the tape from the previous commercial and you make a set a segment that runs about 30 seconds of cutting all these pieces down. So when you come back in, your bumper has a 30 second uh, bumper of what happened the last segment. So because it's live, you're constantly like a machine. The average Joe would probably crumble in. Yeah. Wow. Sports sports radio is the most active thing I've ever seen. And I've been around TV my whole life. I've been around films my whole life. Sports is the most active form of media that is out there more than any other, because it's just a constant, constant, constant flow. And things are happening in live real time every second. Is if it's like the guy at the Hindenburg be over and over and over, you know, we got different images each time, you know, that's how it is over and over and over. Fascinating. But that, that's what it is. And that, and it's a great place if you're going to do radio to learn how to do radio is, is work in sports radio. Yeah. Let's jump up to music supervision. That has to be one of the hottest jobs today. And not only that, what's, what's interesting is every musician, every artist, every songwriter, once their songs once they get their songs to a music supervisor or supervisors, that's just exploded that part of it over the last few years. Tell me about being a music supervisor. What does a music supervisor do besides select music? I mean, it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of changed over the years. I can speak for me only and my experiences with others, but I'm not exactly sure what goes on today outside of just gathering music, relationships with labels, 
and giving it to the editor or the producer and get going, you know, and putting it out on there and hope for the best. I know for me, you know, there was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of cue sheets we had to do, you know, when I did, cause like I said, I did the live TV stuff and then working at a, a music house, a music agency with ad agencies. I mean, it was a little bit different as far as like t- regular TV and films I've done, but it's not, I, I, I just know from doing stuff on a very fast paced level, yeah. commercials have to be done by yesterday. Live TV has to be done by the day before. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of hard, but, you know, I mean, like I said, I was a conceptual guy, you come up with a conceptual idea. If it is, um, if we're doing like a network TV thing on, on live TV, you have to make sure all your ducks are in order uh, with the legalities, um, getting the music. If you have a live, um, a lot of times you'll get musician and sports coming down to the whole thing. So there's a lot of legal clearances that you do internally. But at the same time, the creativeness is is working with, you know, maybe the graphics department, you have to work with them. You have to work with the promo department. You have to work with, you know, the announcers all, all above just to make that three minute piece of music. Sports music is very interesting because it's always very upbeat. It's always a uh, high tempo. Plus there's a lot of rock guitar, generally speaking, which isn't popular anywhere else these days, but it is there. Unless somebody dies. And then it's it's melancholy. Yeah. Can anybody be a music supervisor? I know a lot of DJs think because, well, I, I know music, so I could be a supervisor. I mean, again, we're going we're doing apples and oranges based off of time. Can anybody be a music supervisor? Absolutely. Can anybody be a good music supervisor? That's a different story. I think it goes with everything. To me, you know, and I'm speaking as a teacher at this point. If you want to be a great music supervisor, you're going to have to know your craft. You're going to have to know your music. There is no excuse not to know your music. That's part of your job. If if you are a first year medical school student, um, then you should know every bone in the body. That's your job. Right. And I think the same really should go with music supervision. I think if you want to get into the field of this, you should learn how to study um, different styles of music. Uh, deal with trends, um, understand legalities. Sure, yeah, anybody could put together 10 songs and send them in. You know, anybody could go to a Spotify playlist and send it in. It's, it's algorithmically done for that. But I think that the ones that exceed probably live and breathe music at, the, at, at their pace. Okay, but that begs the question then, you can't know everything. You can't know all the genres. Do certain supervisors specialize in a genre? I'm sure they do. I mean, there's certain supervisors I know that that are extremely proficient in classical music. I know supervisors are extremely proficient in hip hop, and some may be proficient in like I'm a piano uh, Afrobeat that's coming out, right? Everybody's got, it's just like in, in medicine. Every doctor has every, oops, sorry. Every doctor has their specialty, but they know the fundamentals of their job. And that's what I'm trying to say is like anybody could do it, but to be great at it, you shouldn't understand the fundamentals of anything. Okay. What makes a good supervisor then? I mean, you could be a great supervisor and popular and famous and get all this work, but it doesn't necessarily make you a great person. It makes you a successful person. Van Gogh didn't sell a painting until he, where after he was dead. 
he wasn't a successful person, but he was a painter. But yet once he died, of course, he became one of these like prolific painters. Basquiat, same thing, you know. So, I mean, that it's, it's, it's a hard question to really say versus success versus great. Yeah, let's come at it from another area then. So if you were to watch a show or listen to a show or whatever, you were exposed to an episode of something, what would make you say, wow, that was good music supervision? And you would zero in on it because you've been doing it, so you know about it. Or you'd say, oh, that was good or that was bad. I think it strikes that, that, that right emotion because, you know, you go think about singles. Any song's a hit once it becomes a hit, you know? So any song can become a hit. It just depends how, you know, it, it sold as that. I mean, you look at Right Said Fred, I'm Too Sexy is definitely not a hit song, but it became a hit the right marketing and right it, the right timing, anything, you know, could. And I think it goes the same with, with supervision in general is finding any song could fit if it fits right. Like you look at one of my favorite pieces is the commercial, um, the Cabrillo commercial with Nick Drake and they use the song Pink Moon, right? Now, the original song was by the band The Church, Milky Way. Now, if you listen to that, it's no longer, you look at it and you're like, ah, it doesn't really fit. But at that time, it fit because we don't know what the Nick Drake Pink Moon looked like, right? Yeah. And the things in class I, I practice with is, is actually finding a, a video, um, and I will have the students watch the video with zero sound on it, tell me what the video is, find two pieces of music and we put it up next to the music and to see how that, that video works with the story within the music. Are they listening to dialogue at the same time? No dialogue, just completely like if off of deaf ears. So we wouldn't be able to hear anything that's going on. So it would have to be hundred percent visual and you're going to then create uh, a narrative and story based off of the music that you pick and using the lyrics, the music or whatever it is as part of your dialogue for forward. The video itself does not have dialogue in it. It's all music, but the music is an actual piece. You know, they reversed it. They had the song and then they created the, the video. I'm just doing it the opposite way. So is that where you start then with your students? No, that's about fifth class then or so. Okay. Where would you start with them? It's your job. If you want to learn stuff, you got to really focus in on stuff and, and, and learn everything you need to learn in this business. Like I said, if, if you're in the other thing is you're dealing with a lot of heads and personalities in, in music and entertainment. So you have to understand who you're working with, what they like and, and forth that yet you are the music supervisor, but you may not be that person who's necessarily picking the music. And the more you understand them, it makes the job easier. Okay. So Let's talk about temp tracks. Is it the music supervisor that's picking a temp track or is that just coming from the director or, or the editor? Depends. Okay. Let's say you're coming in later and there's temp tracks everywhere and they say, I want something that sounds like this, which is really difficult a lot of times because they have that imprinted on their minds. I really want this. So no matter what, it's not going to fit. So how do you deal with that? Same thing. I mean, it, it, it all runs back to, I don't know, every, every, every situation is a situation, you know, everything's a situation. It, it's, it's really hard because yet you get the temp track of we want Kanye, but we can't afford it. 
but sometimes they find the money for it. Or you come up with other creative ideas and you present that. One thing that I, I can't stress enough, especially for new music supervisors, is to learn like logic, learn Final Cut or Premiere, whatever it is, and learn it and learn it and put stuff together and create your own reels for everything you do. Because then that is a way that you could actually show other, let's say a director and editor who may be stuck with a temp track, you could actually find other pieces of music that you've already maybe pre-cleared for that, that, that budgetary rate and say, Hey, look, here's some ideas here. I just threw these out. Remember the, the whole thing is, is to make it seem like they thought of that answer. You don't want to come in there and say, hey, I'm going to save the day. It's the guy, the prince on the white horse. It's just the more you make people think that they they thought it by guiding it towards them, then it's going to be a win-win. I mean, in my experience, it's always been that way. Yeah, yeah. What's the one thing that a music supervisor does that people don't know or you wish they knew? Yeah, I think, I think, well, no, because it's the hidden thing. I mean, there's a lot of secrets everybody has, how they find music, what they look for, where they find their music. I think the biggest thing people need to understand is in music supervision, like any other thing, it's a community within a, within a thing and relationships count a hundred percent. If you have great relationships with somebody, you know, then maybe the deals are different. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, can two paralegals do all the deals and, and knock it out the park? Sure. But it's not how it's set up. You know, there's there's more to it than that. Um, there's more machine. There's more of labels have priorities. Publishers have priorities. And music supervisors, I think best ability is to learn how to finesse between all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, when, you know, there is a, a new artist that comes out, that's going to be a label and publisher's priority. So that's what they're going to send you in the brief is that priority. Understanding that, and understanding, you know, that kind of world and learning how to finesse is part of it, you know. And that's where I say come in and understand music. It's not always going to be the new stuff that they send you. Yeah. But at the same time, you can make it work. You look at a Gus Van Sant or a Jim Jarmusch movie, Gus Van Sant especially, on paper, it looks like a train wreck. But when you visually see it, it makes absolute sense. You know, and I remember talking to, I, I met Gus once at a, an event party. And I asked them, and I hate asking people about, you know, their jobs or things, but I just had to know uh, my own private Idaho, which is one of my favorite films that he did. And I was so curious on how he was able to develop that sound and seeing that there was no actual music supervisor on that show, except for mostly him. And he was telling me how, I think it was either Nashville or somewhere else over there. He went to some of these old studios, thumbed through all the tapes and kind of got the ideas of how this is supposed to sound and, worked with the composer on all this and, and came up with the, the Eddie Arnold kind of vibe and, and the cowboy sound and, you know, how would it look in this rural town with, you know, with this kid who's like a, a male prostitute and, and so on and so forth. So that to me was just fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Let's switch to radio. Uh, I want to talk about your show. Where do you find the music for it? That I'm never going to tell. Um, <laughs> but in 24 years, I've, I've, I've met a lot of folks. Where I find it is it could be based off an algorithm. It could be based off of 
search engines, global search engines. It could be based off, definitely off of relationships, um, definitely off other artists who are working with, with folks who they're working with, who they're producing, having a lot of coffee meetings and just really diving in and, and learning what's the new, new thing. A lot of times the new music that's about to happen is right in front of us. You just have to know how to look for it. So you've been doing this for 24 years. Yeah. How has your show changed in that time? Funny enough, it hasn't. I look at old playlists and it's it's been kind of consistent over the years. When I was, like I said, doing KCRW, I wanted to learn how to, you know, speak a little bit different. Um, that's when I worked at Fox Sports. Was to kind of get an idea of, of how sports radio talk and how you put this into a music show at the same time, if that is even possible, you know, and, and make it for whatever it is. But yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a constant, a constant flow. Okay. So you're in public radio, which is distinctly different from commercial radio, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. What do you see the future of radio being? I'm not, I'm not a malcontent when it comes to that. I think, Radio is still going to be there because even with digital, it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're still not going to get that local crunch that you get with radio. I mean, I remember when cable first came about, they were saying the same thing about broadcast TV. It's done with, right? Yeah. Streaming was like, oh, it's going to eat up broadcast TV. It's going to eat up this and that. I mean, does it? I mean, of course it shifts a little, but does it really? And I think the same with radio, you know, you get to a point where now even labels aren't looking at DSP playlisting. It's just not as important anymore because you're, you're, you're so narrow casted. You know, I was at a, a show the other day and I was talking, the sound guy was texting me while we were watching the show and he says, yeah, it's just another, another artist with that TikTok sound. There you go right there. I mean, I call it a Spotify sound, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a TikTok sound. So it's just going to keep, keep doing its thing. And radio is so ingrained. In it's really up to uh, radio to, to focus on how to get that back. Yeah. It's really interesting when it comes to that, you know, you're talking about narrow casting. I do something for my subscribers called what makes a song a hit where I go in and I analyze it and whatever, but I try to take whatever is number one globally. And I look at all the charts from all the DSPs and just see what's going on. And it was interesting. Like for instance, this week I looked at Amazon and the top 10, eight of them were Beyonce, but she didn't appear in any in top 10 in any of the other playlists, the other top 10 playlists. And they were all distinctly different and what was number one what was you know you know whatever so you're right it is narrow casting right and then you're also looking at you, you get into market segmentation rather than psychographics of this because market segmentation is going to uh narrow narrow down demographics to what folks like right yeah and we know that that stations like um amazon and or pandora are not necessarily made for 18 to 24 right and 18 to 24 year olds, frankly, don't buy anything. Whereas a 30 to 50 year old is going to buy things. And Amazon is definitely selling to those, those folks with Amazon. So yeah. you already have a built-in way of buying stuff for a certain age group. So to me, it just makes sense that, that you're gonna probably have a higher uh, seller point in Amazon. Anyway. Yeah, makes sense. 
Okay, last question, Jason. What's the best piece of advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, like I said, everything's a situation. Like I said, I can speak for me, but I, I have a paramilitary sensibility, right? So working, doing the fire stuff and all that, that kind of thought process or thinking is, is a lot different than Cape coming being an intern or whatever it is. So I may be on an island by myself. You know, it's worked for me. I've, I've gotten to do things that, you know, maybe other folks haven't gone to do because of, of that sensibility that, you know, like, I think it was like be a, a letter writing fool. I think that my Jerry, you know, it was Jerry when I was at Fox Sports said that to me, just be a letter writing fool or, or collect uh, cards because the more you just get yourself out there, the more you learn and, you know, be diverse. I mean, I, this is, I, I shoot photography now um, as a side gig and I'm actually, you know, in things now because of that. So my, I guess my best advice is, is, is don't, don't just stop with the one thing you're in the arts. So just because you're a music supervisor and you want to do that, don't just stop with that. Learn how to edit, learn how to make films, learn how to make movies or, or, or take photos or learn how to do all these different things in there. Learn how to produce, learn how to work in marketing, learn how to do all these different things. And that, that's the kind of the, like I said, the, the paramilitary background that I, I was learned is like, say this flashlight I'm holding, I had to learn everything about what this flashlight was and make it work. And if the batteries weren't in it, what do I need to do? What color is the flashlight? What, who makes it? What does it say? It says city of Los Angeles, right? This is my old fire flashlight. I had to learn what Los Angeles meant. I had to learn about what year the city was adapted. So that was all part of the stuff you do. And the best piece of advice and is just constantly educate yourself and learn everything you can about said your said field, your trade. You can find out more about Jason at kcrw.com forward slash people forward slash Jason dash Kramer. That's kcrw.com forward slash people forward slash Jason dash Kramer. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.